No mai haere mai, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maximum Institute podcast. As part of my role as the communications manager at Maximum Institute, I have the opportunity to edit Flint and Steel, an annual publication that aims to spark thought and conversation about the themes and ideas that shape our understanding of life and society in New Zealand. This year, we took on the theme of vocation, exploring the many different facets of meaning and purpose in our work, our relationships and our lives. In my early conversations around this topic, I came across work by the Southern Initiative that outlined what they titled the Pacific Workforce Challenge. It is research that does the best of what research can do, listening to and illuminating the lived experience of people in a way that shines a light on the problems they face and effectively illustrates the opportunity we have to do something about it in a way that can benefit all of us. One of the authors of that report, Leilani Tamu, agreed to be interviewed for an article in this year's magazine, and she generously agreed to join us to speak at the launches of Flint and Steel in Wellington and Auckland. You can read the article featuring Leilani's interview, plus seven other pieces of exclusive local content on vocation, working and living in New Zealand, in this year's volume of Flint and Steel. Head to flintandsteelmag.com to get your copy. But for now, you're about to hear Lalani's interview with Alex Pink, with additional questions from our audience. Just to let you know, early on in the conversation, we had some quality issues with Lalani's mic. These were fixed pretty quickly, and we decided not to edit those moments out of the podcast, as the content she covers is deeply important and really helps set the scene for the rest of what she had to say. For now, let's get to the podcast. He honare ki te atua, he mongaronga ki te whenua, he pai ki na tangata katoa, tēnā koutou katoa. My name's Alex Pink, I'm the CEO of Maxim Institute. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening and to say thanks for coming to join us for the launch of this year's edition of Flint and Steel. I want to introduce to you Lelani Tamu. Um, Lelani is featured, is, is interviewed in the first article in this year's Flint and Steel. Um, and that article is titled When Worlds Collide, and it explores specific ideas of success in New Zealand's workforce. Now, when I read Lilani's biography and thought about introducing you to her, I felt exhausted. She has a long list of accomplishments for me to, to cover off with you. Lilani is a former New Zealand diplomat, a published poet, a Fulbright alumna, and the current manager of Pacific policy at MB. She has a first-class master's in Pacific history from the University of Auckland and was recently nominated as one of their top 40 under 40 alumna. She's also the director of a small community social enterprise called the Food Waste Ferry, and she's the proud mother of Kale and Luca. Lilani has ancestral and marital connections to Samoa, Tonga, and Niue. So Lilani, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And when we were chatting um, before the event, you told me that you were working at the moment on an internship program within MB uh, for Pacific graduates, I believe. I wondered if we could start talking about the theme of vocation tonight, just by hearing a little bit more from you about that program. Sure, Alex. So uh, the program is delivered by MB and it is... um, it's an annual program that we run for the public sector and it's focused on um, creating career pathway opportunities for Pacific tertiary students into policy careers. Um, and the reason it's really important is because across the policy career pathway in the sector, there's only 77 Pacific policy analysts out of about four and a half thousand. So, um, and the program's in its fifth year. We've already se- seen significant employment outcomes in terms of um, realising some change. Um, but the key thing for me as I was sort of reflecting on earlier today is that the internship's only one part. We have to start to build the wider system of change in the sector. 
Okay, thank you. What, what does building a wider system of change look like? What other things would you want to go around the internship, for example? So the big thing for me is really asking hard questions of ourselves in terms of why do we as Pacific in the sector have such, such significant levels of underrepresentation in executive management roles. Um, so across the sector, what we see is a lack of diversity in terms of tiers one to three. Um, but in particular, we see groups like Pacific who are absent completely from those management roles. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is to the extent that you know there might be evidence or, or experience because I mean when you, you talk about an outcome like you know 77 out of 4,000, 4,500, you can obviously hear the disparity in terms of outcome. So what is it uh, along the way that's, that's resulting in that disparity? So there are a range of issues. So the first one is historical and so it's understanding the context within which Pacific peoples in New Zealand have come to be here. Um, frankly, we were being brought here for economic reasons to be low-wage, low-skilled labourers as New Zealand's economy in the 60s and 70s was booming. New Zealand looked to the Pacific to um, essentially bring in factory workers and that was my grandparents' journey. And so what we found though was that there was really no plan for us in terms of realising prosperity and wellbeing and success and so it really fell on our own communities and networks to to make that happen. And so four generations later, which is where we are now, um, although we're starting to get real breakthroughs in terms of our young people coming through with university degrees, we still have a lack of understanding in New Zealand society that Pacific peoples actually have a huge amount to contribute, um, particularly in terms of the way that we approach the world of work and leadership. So I think from what I understand, when you're running the internship program, there's, there's, a, there's a pastoral dimension and a sort of a mentoring dimension, both for the, the, the interns, the graduates, and I think for the people that they're placed with. Can you, can you give us an idea of the sort of guidance you're attempting to provide to both those groups? Yeah, so we play quite a critical role, I guess, as a, a conduit. Um, so, I mean, recognising that most of the people leaders that we work with have had very little to do with Pacific communities, which for me represents a disconnect in our society. They're desperate to understand more. What are our motivators? What are our drivers? And often for us as Pacific peoples, it is family. It's a sense of service. We're driven by humility. We're driven by a collective sense of generosity. Um, and relationships really matter. So personal, individual ambition isn't a driver for us, and neither is money. Um, for our Pacific students, it's about, like, for example, one of them today said to me, I was the only person on my floor who was Pacific and not Pākehā. And it's the first time they've been in those alienating spaces and it's about saying to them, yes, that is the reality, but we're here. What are you saying to the people that are, you know, to those Pākehā who are on that floor? What would you say to them about, um, you know, this is your responsibility or that this is how you should create an environment for somebody who's who's in that uncomfortable position to come into. I've been really impressed with the way in which the managers and agencies involved have stepped into, I guess, a place of discomfort and been willing to say, we want to learn, that we recognise that we have knowledge gaps and that there are things we just don't know. Um, and so the things that we do is we create a dynamic and fun environment for them as a starting point. So we make sure it's a safe space. And we talk to them about the, the realities, you know, like we try to get them to think about the things they don't know. 
get them to reflect on who are their friendship networks, what kinds of communities do they hang out in, um, get them to think about what authors they've read. And so do they know about Albert Red Went, for example, you know, some of our literary greats from the Pacific. And so to be frank, some of it is a decolonization exercise. It's about a reframing and get, getting rid of some of that imperial baggage. There was a point a moment ago that I thought, oh, this would be a good springboard to sort of to talk about um, back to the broader concept of vocation. So you may have touched on, on some of this already. But if I said, what does vocation mean from a Pacific perspective, what would you, what would you say in response to that? From a Pacific perspective, it's fair to say that vocation is first and foremost about um, a sense of uh, wanting to make a difference because we want to honour our families. And, our, um, and the sacrifices that our parents and grandparents have made. So it's about really like living a life of service in everything that we do. So how does that affect how you might think about um, questions of, of success? What does success look like in life? What does success look like in terms of your vocation, particularly in relation to sort of economic and, and financial uh, outcomes or priorities? For Pacifica people, success first and foremost is about really honouring your family and making them proud. So um, like for me, everything I do is for my grandparents because they sacrifice so much when they came here to New Zealand from Samoa they worked the factory floors like literally they used to work 14 hour days and so those stories that narrative is critical to our to all of our success in terms of financial and economic success for us as Pacifica we often have a future vision for our children but money itself isn't a motivator for why we do what we do so what are, what are the key motivators then? The motivators for us are often, um, it is about how we can bring well-being and prosperity about for our whole family and often that's more through um, relationality, the way we look after each other. Um, care work is really, really important to us and so um, the way we look after our elders, that's why we often struggle with putting our elderly in rest homes. We really struggle with it and that's often why our women will choose um, to stay home and look after our children because we struggle with other people having that responsibility when it's our duty to do that. I want to pick up on that word struggle because it sort of partly implies to me that there's, there's almost like a a clash of cultural expectations and, and cultural norms. Am I am I right in thinking that? And and if so, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, yes, you are right. I think there are real tensions for Pacifica peoples living here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, we are very much trying to survive. Um, when you look at our um, economic story, if you like, it's, it is one of struggle. We have um, the most severe disparities when you look at economic indicators in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, there's some research I recently commissioned regarding in-work poverty, and we are overrepresented um, over any other ethnicity in the country in relation to that. Okay, so I mean, you, you talk about living a life, vocation being about living a life of service, and um, there's a there's a concept that I found really interesting in the in the article in, in the magazine that you're interviewed for. Um, there's a concept of leadership in there which uh, which is about leading from behind. Could you tell us a little bit about that sort of idea of what leading from behind looks like and how that might sort of impact on 
on vocation? So what I can do is I can maybe describe what it looks like in my context. Um, so I'm one of only 10 people leaders at MB and that's out of about 650. Um, and in my context, it means that I'm the person that maybe people don't necessarily see. It's not always a visible role, but I'm the invisible person in the background creating opportunity, advocating, um, educating, creating safe space, mentoring, um, having hard conversations. Um, a really simple example would be last year, um, our CEO said to me, oh, we can uh, support a scholarship, a leadership scholarship. And I said to her, okay, great. So we went out and we had three amazing amazing applicants, all three, like I couldn't choose between them. So I said to my CEO, can I have three? <laughs> and she said yes. And so it's like nobody will know that that was me, but in the background it's because of me that instead of one we got three. And this year she said to me, okay, three's the minimum, how many do you want? And I said five. Before we you know, carry on with the conversation, there's a certain, almost like an assumption within, within the conversation so far. We're, we're talking about, I mean, I just asked you a question about a Pacific perspective on vocation. And I'm kind of aware that often we use a term like Pacific, or even as we were talking about before, Māori, Pākehā, and there's, there's a whole lot of diversity actually within those categories. So is it, is it fair to talk about a Pacific perspective? Is that, is that a reasonable thing to do? Or can we do it with caution? How do you think about that? So I've reflected on this a lot over the course of my life because we're incredibly diverse. We all come from within the Pacific community context. Obviously, our region is diverse. All our islands have different complex histories, languages, um, metaphors, proverbs. I would say, though, is within the context of Aotearoa New Zealand, Pacific peoples have a sense of identity that is bound by an enduring set of values and that when you look at the evidence base, it doesn't matter whether you're New Zealand born or you were born in the islands or where you were brought up, actually what you see is some strong commonalities in terms of those values drivers and they bind us as a community. What do you think then we can learn from, from each other, um, from different cultural starting points, from different viewpoints, when we think about these, uh, these concepts of vocation? So for example, one of the things that um, was written about in the magazine was a, was a sense of... Uh, you know, there might be different cultural expectations around time that you would spend on family commitments, uh, for example, and an employer might sort of say, well, I'm paying for your time. You don't now get to determine that you go and, and do this thing with your family. How do we sort of uh, give and take there and, and learn from each other um, and perhaps in the process adjust our expectations? From a Pacific perspective, family is everything to us. For me, it's our survival. Like, we wouldn't, when you look at the socioeconomic statistics in this country, like, it's a shock that we even survive. You know, $19,000 per annum is our median income, and we have a declining home ownership rate. We don't have an asset base. And yet, it's our families that have kept us together. And so, it's an understanding that actually family and community is part of our resilience. And, and when you look at the economic stats, Pacific peoples give the greatest number of volunteer hours to New Zealand society than any other ethnic cohort. And so it's actually starting to think about the contribution as being wider than the money and the time. It's actually about a wider sense of service and care. And so if we start having those conversations within workplaces, I think actually it's going to benefit us all. I mean, it seems to me that wider concept of, of service and care goes back to that sense that vocation is more than just what we do in our paid employment and valuing 
things you know, solely for their economic or, or financial return. I mean, you, you started to sketch for us there some of the, the challenges and opportunities, well, sorry, the challenges really for, for Pacific peoples in the workforce. And I know there's been a series of reports. We've had the Pacific Peoples Workforce Challenges, the Attitude Gap Challenge, the Early Years Challenge. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what those, that's three challenges, <laughs> yeah, uh, ab about those challenges, but I'd also be really interested to hear about opportunities that you see as well. The in terms of the challenges, they are deeply complex. So first and foremost, we're highly urbanised and we're largely concentrated in Auckland and South Auckland. So over 60% of our population group is there. Secondly, we're one of the youngest and fastest growing ethnic population groups in New Zealand. Total population at the moment is 8%. It's projected that we'll grow to 15% within the next 10 years. Our median age is 22 years old. So you can see both challenge and opportunity there. For the country, we obviously have an ageing population. Pacific young people are the future workforce and we're also the future business owners. The challenge is we don't have an asset base. That's our number one challenge. And part of that is because at the moment, we, with a declining home ownership rate and with most of us in Auckland, we just don't have access to be able to get that foot on the ladder. And so we have an intergenerational cycle of poverty playing out and we need some circuit breakers. Any suggestions about what those circuit breakers look like? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, what I'm trying to do, I guess, in my job in MB is really say, look, stop looking at tried and true programs that you think have worked and clearly haven't. Actually start to listen to the community, look, look at the evidence base. Number one, take an intergenerational approach, take a household approach. Don't look at us as individuals. So a lot of programs, for example, government invest in youth and young people and needs. For Pacific peoples, actually, that's never going to work because the biggest influences on us are our parents and our grandparents. And because we're young and we all live together, investing in all of us is the way to break the cycle. And so the big thing for me, for example, is I always say, okay, if you look at mum and mum's in a manufacturing job and we're about to go through a big change in manufacturing the next five years, her income insecurity and job precarity is going to have a flow-on effect to your next eldest child who's potentially your brightest star about to go to university, what they will do naturally is they'll pull out of school and they'll take the first job they can get to support mum to bring up the other kids. That's the reality. And so we need to stop looking at us as individuals and we also need to start investing in community solutions. My thing that I always say is it's about by Pacific, for Pacific. We need to stop taking a doing to approach. You've, um, you, you've talked a little bit already about the, um, the way that the history of Pacific peoples coming to New Zealand predominantly as uh, economic migrants in, in the 60s and 70s has sort of influenced the way that we think about these issues today. And I mean, I know that when I was at um, high school, at Calston Boys High School out in the west of Auckland uh, in the 1990s, which makes me feel very old saying that, but, um, you know, I, I can remember terms like, you know, he's fresh, uh, you know, he's an overstayer, or um, you know, these, these are all the kind of things that, that I heard every day, but they're, at least the first two are, you know, are terms that very much come out of that history of economic, um, economic migra migration, um, along with Dawn Raid, um, and so on and so on. How, how do you think, um, how fundamentally do you think, and in what ways do you think that history has really shaped Pacific people's impressions of themselves, not just how others see them, but Pacific people's impressions of themselves and their stories of themselves in New Zealand today. 
hugely. I mean, when you look at where we are thriving, and particularly in terms of sports and the arts and our people speaking out, we, we talk about that history of hardship. We don't often talk about it with angst. We talk about it with pride because we recognise the sacrifice our parents make was because it's actually... Sorry, I'm going to cry. <laughs> but just it's because of them that we're here. It's because of my grandmother that I'm here. So although New Zealand has a been kind to us, we hold our own. Um, but where I think New Zealand society needs to step up is we need to start educating ourselves, all of us, about Pacific peoples and our history. And our teachers and our education system need to start doing a better job of honouring that history and seeing us as sophisticated people not as least, but as people who are proud and have a lot to contribute. Thank you for your passion and your openness and your vulnerability with us answering that. I mean, for the benefit of everybody else here, we, we talked a little bit before the start of the event about um, the need to have, uh, what, what in a different context uh, um, a friend of Maxim's calls, um, awkward conversations, or conversations in, in awkward spaces. And that's, that's sort of easy to say, and it's hard to do, especially in front of a room full of people, and it takes courage. And I just want to honour the courage that you've shown in sharing that with us. And, um, yeah, the fact that you've given us uh, something of yourself and of your family and of your people in answering that. And I think that's the path to, to greater understanding and to an interwoven future as a nation. And I don't think we get there without a certain amount of pain and vulnerability. So thank you for providing that leadership. Thinking about the future for Pacific peoples in New Zealand and, and the sort of the context of biculturalism, Treaty of Waitangi, because um, I know that that's a part of the, the internship um, that you run is actually thinking about Pacific peoples and, and the treaty. Can you tell me how you think a little bit about that, what it means to be um, of Pacific heritage in a bicultural context. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this over my career and um, I guess the key thing for us is, it comes back to, there's a Tongan scholar called Epele Haofa and Epele talks about the idea that um, the Pacific Islands are not little islands in a big ocean. We are many islands that are all connected and so um, that concept, therefore, if you take that paradigm, our relationship with Māori is critical because Māori are like our cousins and our brothers and sisters and it's relational space. And whenever you go to Marae as a Pacifica, you're always honoured because we have shared ancestry. So the key thing for me is that's the most important thing for us is our relationship to this region as peoples who are indigenous to the region. Number two, in the context of Te Tiriti, it's about honouring the partnership because we were brought here by the crown for economic purposes and so it's understanding that part of our role here is to honour the partnership with Māori through that pact but there's another really important piece which people don't talk about which is that New Zealand colonised a number of our islands and so New Zealand actually has actually played an imperial role in our islands and so Te Tiriti also has a bigger role than just Aotearoa New Zealand in a Pacific context. It's, um, it's time to switch over to the, uh, the point where you get to ask questions now. Because we are recording tonight, um, when you've asked the question, I'm just going to re repeat it um, so that we capture it for the recording. Can you talk a little bit more about um, grouping Pacific and Māori 
uh, together, um, particularly in a business context, and think about the relationship to the treaty and whether the treaty means um, that there is an obligation to Pacific peoples as well as that. In relation to the first part, so I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this one as well, and so in the article, one of the things that Lana says is that since the 18th century, the relationship between Pacifica and Māori has been mediated largely by Pākehā. So it's almost like a three-way triangle. And first and foremost, in any organisational context, the thing that I seek to do is to break that mediation. It's not about a third party mediating what our relationship looks like. It's about us figuring what that looks like. So in our context at MB, um, I was very intentional when I went to see Te Kupinga, who's the Māori counterpart of my team, to have that conversation, and that conversation was about actually related, similar, but different, and being really clear about what those differences were, and making sure we weren't lumped together for the sake of maybe because it was easier for others. Um, secondly, in relation to um, te tiriti and obligations. Um, so um, in the context of political context of Aotearoa New Zealand, it is clear that we are a partner on the side of needing to honour the commitments of the Crown. So that for me is 100% clear, like it's a clear demarcation. But in the context of the realm of Aotearoa and the countries within which New Zealand had an imperial presence, in particular Nui Tokelau, the Cooks and Samoa. Um, yes, I do think that New Zealand still has a way to go in terms of really acknowledging the detrimental impact it's had, particularly um, when you look at Nui, for example, that language is just about um, going to disappear in terms of native speakers within one generation, and that in part is because Nui, fluent Nuiians speakers were punished for speaking their language because it was a New Zealand education system in the 50s and 60s but we aren't having those conversations yet as peoples partly because we're still surviving here um, but I do think increasingly we're going to need to start having them. In your role what would be the legacy that you'd want to leave behind what achievements would you be proud of if you look back on regardless of whatever expectations have been set for you? So there's two so one is I guess very acute and personal and that's around supporting more Pacifica into executive leadership roles throughout the sector um, and doing that at scale so I've got a vision for what that looks like in the next three years haven't executed it yet I've tested it at MB and I'm ready to push it out so that's my plan um, so three Three years, let's see how I go. And then the second one is I really, really want to seed the conversation now around the implications of the future of work for Pacific peoples. Um, we're overrepresented in industries, sectors and occupations where the biggest uh, changes are about to unfold in the next five years. We're already being impacted. Um, I want to start talking about investment and preparedness and resilience and I want to start um, the converse, new conversations around what we can do differently instead of it just being, like I said, tried and true things and then waiting for us to be at MSD trying to get hardship grants. What percentage of Pacific people get a tertiary education? Um, I don't know the exact percentage, but what I can tell you is the number gets very small when you start to look at the education system and A, who makes it, into universities and B, who makes it through. Um, and so what what 
concerns me even more, though, is not the brokenness of the education system, but what plays out once we graduate, because what we've started to observe is that um, even for those who are coming out with master's degrees, they're going into entry-level administration roles or going into retail roles. And for me, that's a really big concern for New Zealand and our economy. So it's like this disjuncture between um, Yes, we get only a few, but why is it that only those few, they still don't go into the roles that they should be going into? And those are the things that I'd like to see addressed more um, intentionally as well. It seems to me that often we focus on um, you know, achievement at a, at a tertiary level, achievement in the workforce and so on. Um, but there's, you know, there's been a long pathway for somebody to get even to, to that point, and, and often those sort of foundations are laid in, in you know, somebody's very early years. And I know that um, particularly the, uh, I think it was the Early Years Challenge report, talked about the importance of the first um, thousand days to, to actually set somebody up for vocational success as an adult. Can you give us any insight to um, whether it's to that report or more generally to how we should be thinking about laying the foundation in those first thousand days um, for Pacific people and perhaps more generally for all of us? I guess for me it comes back to care responsibilities um, because we have bigger household sizes, our average household size is five to six and we're intergenerational, our grandparents play a critical role in our upbringing. So my mum, for example, worked, she was a solo mum, so that my grandparents could take care of us. And so my university education is due to that early investment from my grandparents' sacrifice. Um, but that also has some implications. So for example, my husband's mother gave up work to help me and my husband so we could keep working now, but then she lost out obviously on her KiwiSaver because she wasn't working for those years. So there's kind of some perverse things that happen because we're supporting each other and, and helping the next generation. We're also making implicit sacrifices which then have flow-on effects. So we need to start thinking about the value of care. And that's not just for Pacifica, but it is acutely important for us because care work and family is part of our survival kit. How do you think about your role as a poet and how that intersects with your work at MB, family life, and all the other aspects of your vocation? I was really lucky when I was at university because Albert Went was still teaching and he was one of my tutors and he's remained a friend of mine as well. And Albert said to me early on, Poetry isn't about writing fancy things that people sit and read and reflect on. Poetry is political. It's a way of actually shaping the world. And so that seeded an idea early on around how I could use poetry as a vehicle for change. So if you read my book, The Art of Excavation, um, it is very much a way of trying to break a colonial mindset around Pacific history. Um, I did my master's thesis in Pacific history. I got first class, but I was so dissatisfied with the way the canon tried to package us up into what suited it. And so when I wrote the book, it was a speaking back to, and it was a way of creating a new platform for telling our stories. Um, in my current role, um, I don't think about poetry in the same way, but I do think very creatively in terms of how I approach things. And I often talk about being a mosaic thinker. Um, I think sometimes people find that really confusing, but I actually think perhaps confusion can be a good thing, right? It's kind of positive disruption in analytical spaces. You've spoken a couple of times about decolonizing. Other than reading your book, how might uh, someone who's Pākehā start that journey? 
first and foremost, I don't think it's about whether you're Pākehā or Pacific or anything. I actually think we all have to decolonise in our own way every single day and we need to look at things differently. Um, there's a really powerful book right now by Selena Tosi-Talamash that has just come out and it's called How Your Difference Makes a Difference. And for me, that says it all. It's kind of like this idea that if we start to break conformity and own our authentic selves and be true to our values and relate to each other as humans in perhaps more courageous ways, then actually we start to learn and understand in different ways and ask different questions and see invisible gaps. So my thing constantly, I'll give you an example, is I'm sitting at tables, I'm the only Pacific person there, I'm the only non-Pākehā person there, and I say, who's missing at this table? Who's not here? Whose voices are not being listened to? That, for a start, is a decolonizing act of empowerment in my day-to-day. -day. Could you just quickly define for us what you mean by decolonizing? Oh, sure. So when I talk about decolonizing, it's about... Um, so the ultimate form of imperialism for me was social Darwinism, where it was essentially the ranking of people on a pyramid with um, Western Europeans at the top, Africans at the bottom, and most of us kind of in the middle. So the whole idea of decolonization for me is actually breaking the concept of imperialism and going, we are human and connected, and actually there is no higher or less, and that all knowledge actually is valuable. How would you speak to an employer who says it's not my responsibility to, uh, to make somebody feel comfortable? Uh, so I would say it is your responsibility and the reason it is is because organisations are people first and foremost. Um, I love that, you know, if you look at organisational theory around productivity and what makes innovation happen, it's because we're just a bunch of people trying to achieve stuff and so actually if you're not connecting with your people and, a and so they can bring their whole selves, you're never going to get the best from them and also you're going to become far less competitive in the space you're in. Um, and when you look internationally in terms of what the evidence says, it talks a lot about diversity of thinking around the idea of cultural intelligence and that actually not agreeing is a good thing because you find these wonderful tensions that then create new opportunities to learn and grow and explore new things that you have never thought of and you can innovate. As a nurse, how could I provide more culturally competent care and advocate for my Pacific patients? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so there's been a lot of research, as you know, over the particularly the last few years about demonstrating that the health inequities we experience in Aotearoa are actually not because we don't have first-class world services on offer, it's because actually we have implicit bias playing out in the way we care. So um, first and foremost, if you are a nurse, which I'm going to see you are, um, thank you. Thank you for the work you do because actually... I think we need to start with our nurses. I don't actually think we invest enough in supporting our frontline nurses. And my auntie, who's a Samoan nurse who's been in palliative care for 30 years, has just quit because she's actually seen that the way we care for our people now is about the business of care. It's no longer about actually honouring people with dignity and compassion. So... Um, Number one, stay. <laughs> Number two, um, 
continue to role model what it looks like in, in your workspace. And I know that's hard, but find others and connect with them and hold that space together. And number three, be courageous and hold that space. And when you see what looks like actually the business of care as opposed to the dignity of care, call it out. Because it's not about Pacific or culture, it's about humanity. Thank you. That's an amazing note, I think, to, to end our question and answer time on. Lilani, I wanted to say thank you for trusting us enough to be vulnerable with us, to be honest with us, and to have the kind of conversations that are certainly, I feel, a lot rarer than, than they should be. And I think I asked before about the concept of leadership and what does that look like, and you gave us an amazing description tonight of leading from behind, and you've also shown us what it looks like to lead from the front. Um, so thank you, this evening's been a real gift. And I just thought I would close with a quote that I think captures this concept of vocation, which is actually from uh, an article in the magazine by Jeremy, our editor, who wrote about vocation and finished his article by saying, the great work of our life's vocation is to accept the challenge of love, what it offers us and what it requires of us. The ultimate goal is not to do something we love, it is to be someone who loves and loves well. Noreira, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenatato kato. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. Don't forget you can read more from Lilani in Lana Lopez's article When Worlds Collide in this year's volume of Flint and Steel. Get your copy and check out the whole back catalogue of previous Flint and Steel articles at flintandsteelmag.com. If you'd like to find out more about Maxim Institute, head to maxim.org.nz where you can sign up for Forum, our monthly email of the work that we're doing and what we're interested in, and you can also sign up to receive invitations to events like the one you've just listened to. Goodbye for now. He konamai.